Philippians 3. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh, for it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness, based on the law, faultless. Whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so, somehow, attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For, as I have often told you before and now, tell you again even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. We are currently in a sermon series on Paul's letter to the Philippian church. It's a letter about Jesus and it's a letter about joy. Paul shows us in this letter in a very personal way that life in Jesus Christ produces a supernatural joy. Even in unlikely places like the church in Philippi, a church in challenging circumstances. Before I begin, we need to understand that joy that Jesus offers us, we first need to understand the difference between joy and happiness. Happiness comes from the Latin word fortuna, which became the English word fortune. So when fortunes are good, then happiness rises. When fortunes are down, then happiness drops to the floor. Happiness, therefore, by definition, is entirely based upon the circumstances of our lives. So therefore, happiness is fleeting. 
It's a moment-by-moment experience as our fortunes rises and declines. But joy, on the other hand, is not dependent upon circumstances. Jesus offers us a joy because Jesus offers us a relationship with God that is not based on what we have done or not done, not based on my circumstances in life, regardless if they've been good or bad. Jesus offers us a relationship with God that's not based on whether we are good, but based on God's grace, a free gift. Jesus offers us joy that is not dependent upon our circumstances because he offers us our salvation, not because we're good, but because he's gracious. And that is the unchanging joy that we can have in the Lord Jesus. Christians have an unchanging joy because they have an unchanging salvation in Jesus. Christians have joy because their salvation, their relationship with God is secure and safe. The Apostle Paul calls the Philippian church to actively rejoice in the Lord so that they can continue to feel secure and safe in their relationship with God. Paul says from verse 1, so keep your Bibles open, we're going to work through the entire chapter, so keep your Bibles open to follow along. And verse 1, Paul says, Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same thing to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. See, Paul doesn't command his fellow Christians to rejoice in the Lord without reason. He's not saying rejoice and ignore or discount your pain and suffering. Paul is not saying Suck it up, put on a brave face, and just put on a smile, good Christian. He's not saying that. Paul has a reason to tell the Philippians to rejoice in the Lord, and he tells us this reason. The reason that he says is that rejoicing will be a safeguard. That's the key word. It's a safeguard. The reason he says that rejoicing will be a safeguard is because when the Philippians will actively and willfully rejoice in the Lord, it will safeguard their faith in Jesus safeguarding them from thinking that they can rely on themselves to be right with God, safeguarding from doubting about their safety and security in Jesus' salvation. Because when you think about it, when we rejoice in the Lord, when we praise Jesus for his grace and love for us, when we delight in Jesus' forgiveness and mercy for us, it stops you from boasting about yourself, doesn't it? It stops us relying on ourselves to be the one who we make for ourselves to be God's people. When we rejoice in the Lord, it makes us focus on and a delight in what Jesus has done for us. And it stops us from focusing on ourselves and despairing on what we can't do to have a relationship with God. And so when we drift away and start to think and believe that it's up to ourselves to earn our relationship with God rather than to receive it as a free gift from Jesus, that type of thinking will suck away our joy. And I was talking about this with a few others in our new community group that we've started on Monday nights. We've been sharing about how some of our family members who don't have a faith or who follow another religion, and we were sharing how these family members, these friends, their lives are burdened with this huge burden of guilt, And we were discussing how they 
deal with this burden of guilt, it causes them to be very driven. It causes them to be very restless. We see them working tirelessly, fussing over little things. They're constantly worrying. They're wearily trying to win over the approval of others or the approval of God. And they never, ever, ever feel like they're good enough. See, that is a tiring, wearisome, joyless life. And we start to think that if it's on our own efforts to win a relationship with God, we run into that worrisome, anxiety-driven, tiring, joyless life. But Jesus comes with good news. He comes to forgive you and I of our sin to lift our guilt so we no longer need to work tirelessly, so we no longer need to fuss over the little things, we no longer need to worry, we no longer need to win the approval of others and the approval of God. Jesus came to die and forgive you so that you can have joy. And so rejoicing the Lord is a way to safeguard our faith in Jesus, which is a way to safeguard our joy in Jesus. Because as Paul goes on to explain, there are people who will try to destroy your joy in the Lord by tempting you to put your confidence in the flesh rather than place your confidence in Christ. Paul goes on to say, verse 2, watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is, who, it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. Paul tells the Philippian church to safeguard their joy in the Lord because by watching out for a group of people, he calls dogs, evildoers, and mutilators. Paul was referring to this group of misguided Jewish Christians who insisted that for you to be a Christian you still had to follow the Jewish traditions and the rituals of circumcision in order to be acceptable to God. But Paul makes it very clear this is false teaching. He says, we are the circumcision. In other words, he's saying we are already identified as God's people, not through physical circumcision, but by possessing the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit in us that marks us out to be God's people internally in our hearts And that internal reality is shown externally when we boast in Christ Jesus, not externally through circumcision. Our confidence that we are God's people is placed in Christ by the dwelling of the Holy Spirit, not by a fleshly marker or ritual. What Paul is saying is that there is no fleshly or human thing or human effort that will make you acceptable to God. And Paul himself goes on to show that he himself had an impeccable CV of fleshy confidence. Verse 4, he says, If someone else thinks that they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, Paul had an impressive beginning. The Jewish law required a baby boy to be circumcised on the eighth day. And so that was a tick for Paul. Even at birth, he already fulfilled the law. He goes on to say, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrews of Hebrews. Paul had an impressive lineage. Paul had the right nationality. He came from the 
elite tribe of Benjamin. And to be a Hebrews of Hebrews meant that his parents raised him according to the Jewish traditions. No one could be more Hebrew or Jewish than Paul. He says, in regards to the law, a Pharisee. Paul lived with impressive standards. Pharisees were those men who were committed to the Jewish scriptures. He says, as for zeal persecuting the church, Paul had an impressive passion. Paul wasn't lukewarm about anything. From his extreme enthusiasm came his violent persecution of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. As for righteousness based on the law, faultless. Paul had an impressive morality. He was extremely upright. If anyone could have earned their way to heaven by their religiosity and human effort, it would have been Paul. Paul had everything except Jesus Christ. As is what Paul will go on to explain, if a person does not have Jesus Christ, they actually have nothing. Verse 7, but whatever were gains to me now, I consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Paul says his impressive, fleshy CV is garbage, worthless, useless to gain his acceptance with God. And the word translated as garbage can also mean dung or manure. One commenter says the Greek word is more vulgar than crap, but not quite as harsh harsh as S-H-I-T. So for the purpose of this sermon, maybe let's use the word that Amy and I are teaching Tristan. Poo. Hey, Tristan, what's that? Poo. Paul looks and counts up all the impressive things on his moral and religious CV, everything in his life to, he trusted to accept God. He looks at that now and he says, this is a big pile of poo. There are plenty of people today who think that they can make themselves good and be acceptable before God by what they do. They say things like, I've never murdered anyone. I pay my taxes. I volunteer to the community. I give to charity. My children give to society. I help my neighbour. I treat others the way I like to be treated. I'm a good person. I go to church. My father and my father's fathers has always gone to church. I come from a good lineage. And I've heard people pull out the trump card. Have you heard of the trump card? The trump card is, I'm a Presbyterian. And so if we look at all those things and I say, hey, Tristan, what's all that? Poo. And that might seem very offensive, But Paul speaks in these terms to emphasize, to stress, to get your attention, to appeal to you that the only way to be acceptable to God is not through self-righteousness by doing good things, 
but through the righteousness that comes from God in Jesus through faith. Which means you have to trust in Jesus who dealt with our sin by taking our punishment on the cross so that we might be forgiven and receive the righteousness that comes from God. It's like you're in court and you've been convicted of speeding. And the judge determines that the penalty is $3,000. He bangs his gavel, the sentence is final. But then the judge gets up, he takes off his wig, he walks over to the bailiff and gets out his wallet and the judge pays the fine for you. You are now right with the court because the judge himself deals with your offence. Jesus is the judge who he himself deals with your offences to make us right with God. Christ's death is the full payment of our sins. And so when we have faith in Christ, God makes us righteous. And what a relief that is. We can stop and relax and have joy in the grace of God. But in Jesus, not only do we receive righteousness, we also receive resurrection. Verse 10, I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Resurrection means being made spiritually, morally, and physically perfect. To be like Jesus for all of eternity, Jesus one day will make us morally, spiritually, and physically perfect. In Jesus, we are made right with God and we become more and more like him until the day of resurrection where we become spiritually, morally, and physically perfect. And it is the resurrection hope in Jesus that motivates Paul to press on in his growth towards becoming more and more like Jesus. Verse 12, not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. See, Paul admits that he is not perfect. He acknowledges that he has not spiritually arrived. Paul hasn't been resurrected yet, and so... He presses on to keep following Jesus until his dying breath. And he's confident that he'll make it to the end because Paul says Christ, Jesus, has taken hold of him. And so what Paul is saying is that as we press on, doing all that we can do to make it to eternal life, the reason why we do that and can do that is because Christ Jesus holds us securely. He will never let us go and he will get us to the end. It's like the kid who's holding onto the parent's hand to cross the road on Darling Street. That is what the kid thinks and knows, but actually we know what's actually happening. It's the parents. They're the ones that's holding onto the kid to make sure that their child gets across the road safely. The parent holds tightly onto the child. For Paul, his imperfection doesn't discourage him from pressing on to following Jesus because he knows that Jesus Christ is holding on to him. Jesus Christ will lead him to safety, to the resurrection life. And so we also don't need to be discouraged by our own imperfections 
we can continue to press on in following Jesus because he will see us safely into the resurrection life because Jesus Christ holds on to us. And so it's with this assurance and confidence we give everything we have to follow Jesus and be there at the end. So how do we do that? Paul says three things on how we are to press on. First, it involves joyfully forgetting and straining. Verse 13, Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. To press on, Paul forgets what's behind. What is behind Paul? Well, it could be his former life as a Pharisee, which was a futile, futile life of piling up rubbish, or it could refer to his past experience and accomplishments as a Christian and as an apostolic leader. Either way, Paul chooses to forget his failures and successes. He forgets his triumphs and his miseries. He forgets his spiritual trophies and his spiritual garbage. The term forgetting here is not about passively losing your memory. Forgetting is actively not dwelling in the past, in your mind and heart, so that the things of the past don't have a bearing and have an influence on your present outlook. If you continue to recall and dwell on your failures, then that can discourage you to keep pressing on because you feel unworthy. You feel hopeless as a failure. But we need to remember that when we confess our sins, Christ forgives us. He gives us a second chance and he doesn't hold the past against us. But if we continue to recall and dwell on the past successes, well, that can make you complacent in pressing on. You can be proud and arrogant as you hold on to your past accomplishments, thinking that you're spiritually superior and that you've already arrived spiritually. See, Paul forgets his past successes and failures to have this mindset, to have a posture of hopefully and humbly growing in faith towards Christ. Hopefully because your failures doesn't stop God working in you. Humbly because God still needs to work in you. And so Paul forgets his past to hopefully and humbly keep moving forward in growth, in faith by God's grace. And he uses the word straining to describe this. Straining is a language of intense effort, not coasting or cruising, but giving it our all, doing everything, everything to not go under in the faith. And it's a picture of a runner who strains every effort to press forward in a race. It's not coasting and it's not cruising, but like a marathon runner doing all things to make sure you don't go under. In a marathon race, it's all those little things that add add up, doesn't it? It's all those little things to make it to the next meter. It's all the little things to make it to the next kilometer. It's all the little things to finish the race. And that's the kind of intensity intentionality we are to have with our Christian life. It's all the things that you do during the day. It's all the things, little things that you do during the week. 
It's all the little things that you do during the year, all the little things that you do in five years, 10 years, 20 years, it all adds up. That will determine whether you, whether you will finish the race or not. And so the first thing on how to press on is to be free from the tyranny of the past, the good and the bad, so that you can keep moving forward to hopefully and humbly give it your all to be more and more like Jesus. The second thing that Paul says on how to press on is to follow in the example of imperfect Christ pursuers. The Christian life is not a solo race. It's a team race. And if you're into running, you know that having a running partner or following a pacer, that really helps you to keep persevering the race, doesn't it? And it's the same with the Christian life. Following other Christians who are pacing with you or ahead of you can really help you press on towards the goal in Christ. Paul says from verse 15, all of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make it clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Join together following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I have often told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Jesus. The destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. Paul encourages everyone in the Philippian church to together follow in his example. And we need to remember that his example is not perfection, but perseverance. Persevering in forgetting and straining to becoming more and more like Jesus until the day of the resurrection. Paul admits that his example is not perfection, but to throw away complacency or despair to press forward in following Jesus. And so we are to follow imperfect Christ pursuers to together pace together in pressing towards Jesus. The alternative is to end up following those who Paul calls as the enemies of Jesus. These were the false teachers. Their God is in their stomachs, which is a way of referring to their selfish lust and desires. And so there's two options on who we can follow. You can either follow those who are imperfect Christ pursuers, or you can follow imperfect lust pursuers. The first will lead to resurrection life in Jesus. The second will lead to destruction. And so the second thing on how we are to press on is not to follow in the example of those who are perfect, because no one is perfect, not even Paul himself, but to follow in the examples of those who are imperfect but are humble and hopeful to keep growing and to keep persevering in Jesus. If we're looking for a perfect leader, mentor, brother and sister in Christ, we're bound to be disappointed but we will be encouraged to keep on going by following those who are humble and hopeful in persevering towards the day of perfection. You need to be encouraged by those who fail but pick themselves up, learn and keep following Jesus. You'll be encouraged by those who make mistakes but pick themselves up, learn and keep following Jesus. You'll be encouraged by those who are slammed to the ground by trials but pick themselves up, learn and keep on following Jesus. You'll be encouraged by those who sin, pick themselves up, confess and learn and keep on following Jesus because spiritual maturity is measured by perseverance, 
not perfect obedience. And so to press on in Christ, we need to follow perseverance, not perfection. The third thing to press on is to eagerly await the glorification of all things. Verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that we can be like his glorious body. As I've been talking and praying with people here at Chapel Hill, there's this growing hopefulness for our church, a growing expectancy that God will do great things at Chapel Hill. Just as you've already been doing, recently we've bring many newcomers to church to the point of starting a new community group. But what if our hope and our expectations for God to do great things this year doesn't come to pass? Well, that won't discourage us or stop us from continuing to press on in following Jesus. That won't stop us to keep on going with ever-increasing intensity and intentionality because we live for a greater expectation than the here and now. We live for a greater hope than the here and now. We live for a hope of seeing Jesus again when all things will be gloriously resurrected when all things will be spiritually, morally, and physically be made perfect. So no matter where chapel will be in one year's time, in five years' time, in ten years' time, we will always keep on running towards Jesus because we don't live for the glorification of Chapel Hill. We live for the glorification of the new heavens and the new earth. That is what will keep us going. That is what compels us to hopefully and humbly press on to Jesus. Therefore, as Paul says in conclusion, chapter 4, my brothers and sisters whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way. Dear friends, no matter what comes to you personally, or collectively as a church, we are to stand firm in the Lord by not wavering in our commitment to press on in following Jesus, to forget and to strive, to follow an example of imperfect Christ followers and to eagerly await the resurrection and glorification of all things. So let's together stand firm in the Lord. To bring it home, let me say a word of those who are well and a word that to those who are not so well. Because as I imagine you listening to this sermon, this exhortation of pressing and straining your head, depending on where you are at at the moment, I think I need to say different things. So first to the well. For those who are physically, mentally, spiritually doing okay at this moment, let me encourage you to not waste your energy, your time, your opportunity to grow more in Jesus and serve more in Jesus. By the grace of God, you are well placed to do much in pressing on towards what is ahead. The world will try to get you to work hard and press on towards the things of this life. But if you have the headspace to think well, 
then think hard about what you are doing with your life to be intentionally living for the future hope. In your wellness, throw yourself wholeheartedly to living for the resurrection. Do great things for the kingdom of God. Be bold and daring. Don't leave anything out. Give Christ your all. Secondly, to a word to those who are not so well. And you might not be doing okay for a number of reasons. Maybe you're struggling with mental health. And that just makes following Jesus and serving others complicated. Maybe you've got young kids and you're in a constant fog of this parenting cloud that clouds your vision of living for God. It's more about survival than anything else. Maybe you have a physical condition and it's long-term and it's taxing. Maybe you're grieving and there's a hole in your life and you walk around feeling empty. For you, as we have looked at these words, pressing on with vigor, straining ahead, living for Christ with all that you have, to be honest, it just feels like being filled with dread, guilt or confusion, doesn't it? Well, first, I want to say that these words are meant to be an encouragement to you. Struggling with depression or anxiety or mental dysfunction doesn't change the fact that Christ has taken hold of you. Having a long-term physical condition doesn't change the hope of being resurrected from the dead. Being in pain and sorrow doesn't stop you from being one of God's children. Not feeling close to God doesn't change the truth that in Christ you can't be any closer to God. And so whatever that you are struggling with at this moment, hold on to God as he is holding on to you. And within the limitations that you have right now, live for Christ with all that you've got. It's going to look different to those who are well. And that is okay. Our standing with God is not based on what we do. We are simply wanting to live for Christ as much as we can with who we are and what we have at this time. So don't feel guilty because you're doing less. But also don't throw in the towel and continue to give what you can give for Christ. You are who you are and the issues in your life are real. But in amongst all those things, God is holding on to you. God is still working in you. And Jesus Christ has taken hold of you. So with who you are and where you are at, at this time, strain towards the resurrection. Let's all press on to take hold for which Christ Jesus has taken hold of us. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your Son, the Lord Jesus, is worth it. We thank you that he is so glorious and so grand. And we thank you that he has taken hold of us. Father, we pray with who we are and whatever circumstances we find ourselves, we pray that by your Spirit and by your Word, that you will give us the conviction and power 
to live for Christ with all that we have. Father, we thank you that it does not depend on us, but on your Son. And so help us and strengthen us to live to him. We pray that we would see your Son soon. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.